Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A21 here on this Thursday. This is a great Thursday. We got a special guest in for our counterpoint brought to you by our friends over at pizzaville pizzaville.ca or 416-736-3636 they'll get you all set up uh we got dan mctagg former liberal mp and energy expert hello there mr mctagg hello alex and we got a new face in here we've got kimberly fawcett former air force captain good to have you thank you very much but you're not just the former air force captain uh, captain you're now a candidate running in scarborough southwest against one guy named Bill Blair. And of course, we've had you on the show, Kim, before. And just before I get into this, Dan, let me just kind of uh, give Kim a couple of minutes to, uh, you know, tell her story or, or, or what she's hearing at the door. But we came to know you, Kim, through your tragedy of losing your infant son and, of course, your leg in a horrific car accident years ago as you were preparing to leave for duty. And really, your story came to light because you've been fighting the government to help um, pay for this prosthetic leg. I mean, you did two tours in Afghanistan. You have given to this country. Country. And I guess, is it fair to say you've taken your fight directly to the Liberals now? Yes, actually, that's a very good there way go. of putting it. <laughs> so you're running. I mean, what was the reason you wanted to jump in? Because you're running in Scarborough Southwest. You're running against a very high profile candidate, uh, an MP. So that's always tough. But what, what was it that drove you to get into this? Well, first of all, Scarborough Southwest is where I live. And I just had this conscious belief that I should be running in the riding in which I live. and uh, But I also knew that he has been a very soft voice for the riding. He really hasn't done an awful lot for Scarborough Southwest. He wasn't responding to residents who were going to him to ask for help. I went to him. I asked for help as well, and he turned his back. And I thought, no, that's not the type of representation. Well, we he was, in fact, I think, caught in a bit of a lie. He said that he had talked and that he didn't talk and he didn't know this or that. Bottom line, yeah, no answers. Yeah. And what are you hearing at the doors? What kind of uh, comments are you hearing? Because obviously you're out knocking on doors. It's a big job candidates are doing it. But what are you hearing at the doors as far as issues? Uh, the biggest issues in Scarborough are regarding uh, health and with regards to public safety. Those yep. are issues. The economy is a big one. Carbon tax is a big one, excessive taxes, and uh, just the fact that people can't live affordably anymore. And yeah. it's just becoming um, a situation where people are living paycheck to paycheck, and that really shouldn't be in this day and age. But it's getting worse. People are frustrated, they're angry, and they want change. All right. Well, let's see if that comes on uh October 21st, assuming that is when we go to the polls. But let's let's start on kind of that big health issue, uh, because that is going to be a big issue. It should be a big issue in this election. We're not really talking about it, but there was a new report that came out um, talking about Ontario hospitals reaching record highs this summer as far as wait times. And so in June of 2019, patients were waiting around 16 hours in emergency rooms, and that's up two hours from last June. And if you go to some rural centers, I mean, there's Niagara hospitals where you can wait 37 hours. And Doug Ford, yeah, he said he's going to end hallway health care. It's a key promise. But this, this, Dan, is 
decades in the making. This is not something that can just be fixed overnight because the reality is we need a structural change in healthcare. period. And I think it has to start at the federal level. Well, yeah, I mean, look, the feds uh, in my time were able to really balance the budget in the 1990s and 2000s and primarily by being able to download on the provinces and services. You know, it wasn't that long ago that I recall uh, some of uh, Dalton McGuinty's uh, previous uh, health ministers, uh, Dwight uh, uh, Duncan, I believe, mm-hmm. comes to mind, uh, saying that almost half of the expenditure of the uh, revenues taken by the provincial government as here in Ontario, this eight or nine years ago, was in fact going to health care. So we know that this is a huge issue. Mm-hmm. The worst thing that could have happened, though, is to compound the problem by, in that same eight years, doubling the debt in this province. Uh, as a Liberal Member of Parliament for that many years, I also recognize that we couldn't balance the books, not without severe cuts in programs uh, at a time when the country was in real trouble, uh, not, not without several years of running deficits to get to the point where we could actually balance the books. Now, of course, that is another factor over and above the structural problem with healthcare in Ontario. We have an aging population. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, people on limited income and more and more people using the system. I don't think you can fix everything in one year. And I think anybody who contends that you can is being uh, crass and very political in the process. Well, you can't fix uh, something in a year because, Kim, in order to get those emergency rooms emptied, you've got to have a structure in place to take the people. And we have no structure for long-term care for seniors. Like, no one talks about senior care. And we've got this aging population And I'm not sure where they're going to go in the next 50 years because we're not really serious about it. Yeah, I think the issue of health care is going to be contentious until somebody decides they want to step up to the plate and address a new process or a new uh, way of doing business. And I, it's unfortunate. The federal government, you know, our responsibility is the transfer payments to the provinces and at the end of the day, it's still the province that has to develop the formula to roll out the health care. Mm-hmm. And in my riding, we do have a, a serious seniors population that is worried about uh, not having accessible health care because the wait times are extremely long, the cost of drugs are going up, and there's no plan in sight. So but there's I think no this real plan. I mean, we have children's hospitals. So if you have a sick <clears throat> child, you know you can go to the sick kids hospital. But if you've got a sick parent, and, and we're all mm-hmm. looking at that, if yeah, you're over the yeah. age of 30, you're, you're concerned about that. There's really nowhere to go. You kind of just hope to God that there's a bed available or someone to deliver the service. But I think it has to be a top topic in the election. That's, well, that's go a good, it's a good yeah. point. I think, uh, unfortunately... It, from the federal government stance, it's still, it's a provincial responsibility and how far do Canadians want the federal government to go into the realm of delivering health care? And because each province is different, each region has its unique challenges, and so each provincial government is doing their best to try to come up with a formula to suit all people in all regions and all areas of uh, their province. And uh, so it's it's a real delicate balance of how and when to intervene and to affect change, I guess. Well, hopefully it happens before I croak.
Yeah, <laughs> but it is, it is an issue. The, the demographic of our country, like everywhere else around the world, Western civilizations, we're, stay, we're, we're aging, uh, we're staying alive a lot longer. That's a good thing, mm-hmm. but it is creating uh, dependency and it's creating a, a, a really uh, challenges for the system. And I think we have to look at a whole rethink in terms of our priorities. What can hospitals do on the public side? What can they do? And I hate to say it. What can they do that is currently not being done on the private side? Well, it is being done. Just no one likes to talk about it. Well, no, it, yeah. uh, I think... <laughs> it's that yeah, conversation yeah. no one will have. No. Just everyone knows, yeah. yeah I, look, yeah. there's a number of programs that are out there. We sure. recognize that uh, many people have and many people have not. And so I think we have to be realistic about our expectations, about what we need. And uh, those who need should have help. Those who can help themselves should be able to do more or do as well. An Alberta man who's uh, worked in the oil patch for 20 years, he wants answers, and I don't blame him, as to why he was not allowed to wear a T-shirt in support of Canadian oil and gas during a visit to the Senate on Parliament Hill. This was on Monday when William Lacey, who's a CFO at uh, Steelhead Petroleum in Alberta, he's going for a tour, and the guy basically says, you can't wear that T-shirt, which was, I love Canadian oil and gas. I've got this T-shirt, Dan. And it's not an offensive T-shirt, but since when can you not stand up for businesses, in particular the energy sector in this country? Well, I guess you have to say I'm in favor of uh, windmills and uh, paper straws. I, I mean, guess. maybe he should have had a shirt saying that. Maybe he should have said, I support uh, Omar Khadr. I've I never seen I've never <laughs> seen anything like that before, and I think members of parliament and senators should have taken great offense to it. And uh, uh, in this case, I, those who are responsible for uh, making that decision, I haven't looked at the, uh, this, the particulars, uh, I think have a, a duty to explain why freedom of speech and something as important as what keeps our financial viability in this country alive, that is the oil and energy sector, uh, you know, ought to be aware that uh, their bread and butter, in fact, their salary is to a large extent paid by that. Yeah, I mean, I was, I mean, I was stunned to hear that, that someone who takes pride in their business, which just happens to be oil, which I happen to love, uh, would be, you know, almost condemned for this. It's it's really unfortunate. It's the uh, I read the article and it was the parliamentary protective services personnel that had overreacted, and I, I kind of got the gist that there was an, a language issue that um, this was a, a French speaking um, individual who's looking at a T-shirt written in English and had who mis- doesn't like oil. Yeah, doesn't like oil. <laughs> Maybe you prefer Saudi oil. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe have Saudi oil, not Canadian oil. Brown eyed cheeks, yeah. you know. <laughs> oh, there you go. So <laughs> there, there was obviously some misunderstanding there, but I think the point being that this uh, graphic shouldn't have been, shouldn't have made it through uh, RCMP when you first get in, come in onto the hill in the first place. If it was so offensive, well, you would think. You would think. So unfortunately, I, it just uh, it didn't get caught until the guy was in the Senate, which should have been his place to. Uh, I think this is highlighting a far more serious problem in Canada, and that there is a significant detachment between the East and yeah. West in this country. Uh, the Western parts of Canada, Saskatchewan, uh, energy producing uh, provinces, are on their knees. Uh, and uh, they are in and trouble. No one cares. It just, oh, and no seemingly, one, uh, we here in Toronto and Montreal really don't give a darn. And it's for that reason that this is why these things are going to flare up more often. The small becomes the big. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, we'll see what uh, I would love to have him on. So he's welcome on this show to find out what happened and what he hears. But uh, no question, we'll find out eventually. We got Kim Fawcett and Dan McTagg joining us today, and uh, let's pick up this story because the headline just threw me for a loop. You've got three five-year-old children taken to hospital after finding discarded syringes near an elementary school in uh, Toronto's West End. 
And the children were playing at recess, and I guess these syringes were kind of discarded right outside the school area, but they got poked, and they've had to go to the hospital, and now it'll take possibly months uh, to find out if they've got whatever, HIV, uh, whatever other things you can catch from a dirty needle. Um, and of course, police are reminding parents, you know, talk to your kids about needle safety, albeit at that age. I don't think you can have that conversation, but uh, do we have that clip, uh, Dusty, of the mom? Here's one of the little girl's moms. These are the things she's worried about of what her child might have gotten. Hepatitis uh, C, hepatitis B, and of course HIV. So we won't know if she's uh, contracted any of those things um, for a few months. You know, this isn't a conversation that you can easily have, Kim, but, you know, we're told that safe injection sites and all these things that we're seeing all over the place that are becoming so normalized are saving lives. And yet we know that more and more we're seeing discarded syringes all over the place. People go pick up needles and then they discard them. The bottom line is um, in keeping other people safe and alive with safe injection sites, there are others being put at risk because of the discarded needles. Yeah, you know, this is this is an issue that came up uh, in my riding at Bluffers Beach. There was a young girl that had stepped on a syringe that had gone through her flip-flop and she had and her family are going through it right now because she had to be tested and she's going to have to wait for another month or two to get retested for all of the um, the diseases and conditions that uh, this uh, mother had just mentioned and it's it's unfortunate I mean Canada has a national addictions crisis um on our hands, and it requires a comprehensive response. And um, yeah, maybe, maybe we'll get one at some point. But <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> well, what we get is these kind of band-aid fixes. The city's like, this is what we're going to do. This is a plan. But increasingly, Dan, we've got more and more neighborhoods falling into, you know, uh, turned over to gangs and guns and crime and drug and prostitution. It, this is what follows with it. Yeah, it's a big issue, public safety, and it is... Uh, overlaid with the issue of, uh, of drugs, opioids, uh, people, uh, discarding these kind of things and putting, uh, you know, the, the, the safety of our children at risk. I think that's, that's a serious factor. And I don't think there's a single parent that didn't hear that today that uh, didn't come back in one way feeling that sort of, uh, lump in their throat saying, my goodness, you know, this mm. could have easily but happened to us. how do you teach someone that young? You don't. Uh, you can't. No, They'd be like, what? Yeah, yeah. What's uh, heroin? What's, like, well, they wouldn't understand that. But I mean, you know, the extent to which these things are taking place uh, is, uh, is, is very much, I, I, I think, a statement on, on where society is at. And I, uh, I recognize there are problems, but, uh, you know, the addiction issue, the opioid issue, uh, the problem of access to drugs in this country uh, is not one that can be dismissed easily because the problem, the crisis is here in so many ways. This is only just another manifestation of that. Yeah, and it's not getting better. Uh, I'm a little surprised by this headline because I kind of can't believe nothing's been done with this. But, uh, you know, with neo-Nazism on the rise around the world, um, the, Australi- the Austrian government, rather, has been under increasing pressure to tear down the home where Adolf Hitler was born. And they've grappled to do, you know, they don't know what to do with this yellow three-story structure. It's not the most impressive building, but it borders the, um, you know, the divide of Germany and Austria. It's very historic, but... You know, do you demolish it? Do you renovate it? What do you do with this? Because the concern, Kim, is that it becomes a shrine to the extreme, to the neo-Nazi movement. And I say, why would we tear down history? Well, you know, Adolf Hitler um, was one of the, without question, one of the most evil men uh, on the 
face of this earth or or to ever have walked on the face of this earth. Uh, He murdered millions and millions of Jews and LGBTQ2 members, uh, political activists. And this is a period of time. It's a period of history. And it's not something that should be celebrated, but it's something that should be remembered. So and, what, what, uh, would, what would be the thing that you do? I mean, to me, the, the thing that makes the most sense is turn it into a museum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would be very much there for, for a museum. It would be a, a museum of remembrance of, of a period in time. Uh, you know, this is where this individual was born. I mean, he wasn't born, this murderous individual. You know, he was just a kid. Um, that was born in this town. It's just, it's uh, it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's a happy place mm-hmm. where, you know, a baby was born, but this person turned out to be something uh, out of this world. But the, the knee-jerk reaction, Dan, is always tear it down. Mm-hmm. And, and frankly, there's an education there, whether you turn it into a, a Holocaust memorial, something to remember, mark, you know, that life and how it turned out and what that person did there's something they can do with it it doesn't have to be we have we have a tendency in canada to do some of this as well i see the city of victoria for instance doing this with some of the founding fathers john and mcdonald there's a recent one in terms of a park uh, i'm not familiar with victoria where things that we just know to be fundamentally wrong today which uh, in its time wasn't um is now uh, really the subject Uh, i i am fully in agreement with kim i think this thing could be turned into something far more useful as a reminder for people, how evil can begin anywhere. Um, uh, you know, if you, I this is in Austria. I thought they figured it out before 2019. Yeah, but I mean, it, 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 <laughs> <had a> few <laughs> you years. go to Germany and of course uh, the name, that you can't even utter the name without charges. And uh, the country takes these things very seriously. In Austria, it's the same thing as well. Um, so I would think that uh, something that could promote and, and provide an opportunity for remembrance of the victims of that hatred, I think is the way to go about it. And however they come about that, perhaps they turn into a Holocaust uh, memorial uh, in in uh, in Austria. There's a number of ways in which they can do it, but uh, tearing it down, I think, is sort of, you know, we might, we go down that road, we might as well start to take down Lenin, sure. Mao's tomb, yeah. uh, and anybody else who has oppressed and killed millions in the name of whatever type of wacky ideology that's out there. I think we call that communism too. Yeah, that's not a race history. Uh, ever heard of uh, pigeon rolling, bowling, whatever? I was surprised by this, Kim. I'd never heard of it, but apparently you have. Um, it is a thing, and it's ruffling feathers of animal rights groups. This is a tradition taking front and center, or did anyway, at the Harrow Fair in Essex, Ontario. And so a video of bowling, or it's actually called rolling pigeons, uh, was shown. And basically these things kind of somersault over themselves and flap their wings and look like they're tripping. This is a breed of pigeon that does not fly. So I spoke with Luke, who is the gentleman who owns about, what, 300 birds. Uh, here's what he says about it. I hope that people will understand that nobody tried to hurt. I don't know if you have any, but you have a cat or dog. You will never try to hurt at your cat or your puppy. We don't want to hurt them. Well, uh, he's getting all sorts of attention because animal rights people, Kim, on uh, are going uh, crazy about this. They're horrified by it. Uh, so he's getting a lot of attention. And, um, you know, bottom line is... You know about this. I, I've never heard about this. Where did you know about it? Uh, these they're, they're called roller pigeons, like R-O-L-L-E-R, roller pigeons. And it's it's a domesticated breed um, that has this birth defect, if you will. It's it's a defect that causes them to, to go into convulsions, to have seizures, and they roll and tumble. And not all of them are... Uh, 
not able to fly. There are certain birds, Birmingham rollers, they're called, Hmm. that can actually fly. And there are people who have teams of birds, and they're kind of like, they (laughs) train them as if they're like (laughs) the firebirds, like they're the snowbirds. They're not the carrier pigeons, they're the roller pigeons. (laughs) No, yeah, yeah, rollers. They're not carrier, no. When they, and during flight, they'll have a seizure, and they'll roll or they'll tumble aerobatically, Um, And it's actually really quite beautiful to see. Um, There's actually competitions around the world with seeing these beautiful flocks of birds fly. And they do these tumbles in unison or one after each other like a waterfall. And it's really quite beautiful. It's the rolling part on the ground. uh, All right, Luke, Kim's got the answer for you. Just let them fly. Fly and flop. (laughs) Don't bowl. Don't bowl and roll. Just fly and flop. All right. I'm uh, late, but I got to get going. But I thank you both so much for joining me tonight. Thanks, Ellen. Oh, thanks. Dan McTague and uh, Kim Foss, good luck on the campaign trail. Thank you're you running very much. in the riding of Scarborough. Scarborough Southwest. All right. A great we'll have candidate. you back on. Good great luck. Candidate. Drop soon. Thanks, Dan. And that is Counterpoint for us tonight. Brought to you by our pals over at Pizzaville, 416 736 or pizzaville.ca.